Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm Patrick Colley. I'm with Keystone Elder Law, and I'm your host of this show. I like to drive home the point that, look, this show is part of a broader mission at Keystone Elder Law. We we provide a ton of free education. And as much as I urge everyone to take action on information, actually improve your situation, shield yourselves from the costs and the challenges of getting older, let's not put the cart before the horse. You have to get education first. Most people, when they think of estate planning, they specifically think of a will. And and hopefully, if you've been listening to this show, you see there's so much more to later in life planning than just having a will. If this is the first episode of the show you have heard, listen to the previous episodes. I think you'll find a lot of helpful content, and, and it's not just me talking. If you go to whp580.com, in the upper left-hand corner, there's a menu. And if you look at the podcast menu, you'll find the Later in Life Planning Show. Or if you have the iHeart app on your phone or your Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, you you can always find old episodes of the Later in Life Planning Show. There's lots of information on the most predictable and expensive threat to you and your family in the later years of life, that being long-term care. But you'll also find information in those previous episodes on Medicare, funeral planning, dementia and memory care, cardiovascular disease, even finding the right assisted living community for your needs. There's, you know, I've brought on a lot of expert guests who have a lot of experience to share, and I hope that the global effect of all of this is that I'm putting out there information that I think people, middle-class families especially, really need to have in order to fully build a shield to protect themselves against the challenges that often come in the later years of life. And if that's not enough, if you go to keystoneelderlaw.com and you use the workshops tab, uh, you can get registered for the next upcoming workshop. I do them pretty much every single week. They tend to be on a Wednesday evening, usually around 6.30 p.m. And, you know, I do one workshop called Middle Class Estate Planning and Asset Protection. I do another one uh, on the details of how you pay for long-term care, just because that happens to be the most predictable and expensive threat that people will run into. But if you if you go to these, if you get registered for this workshop, you can take it in from the comfort of your own home. Uh, it's all online. You can ask questions in the chat function. I answer all the questions. But we go really deep into the various estate planning tools. We go into some tax issues that the middle class runs into, and we certainly go into how you can protect assets from long-term care costs or even just family dynamic issues that come up. Because without this in-depth education, very few people have any clue about how to plan ahead for the later years of life. You're left just sort of looking at the articles you see online. And they sometimes get it right and they sometimes get it wrong. And that's my focus today. I've, you know, I make a regular practice of this. I mean, if I have the responsibility of meeting with families all the time and they're they're basically sharing their family's journey with me, I take that extremely seriously. So I'm constantly reading articles, scholarly articles and and mass publication articles 
to just get new ideas and to challenge the ideas that I already have to make sure that I'm doing the best job I possibly can. But I wanted to go through some today just as an illustration of what happens if you don't seek out information like you're taking in right now or if you don't sign up for a, a workshop uh, at keystoneelderlaw.com you're going to you're going to see articles and I'm I'm just going through some articles that just came out recently just to share my thoughts on them. Uh, and, and some of them, you know, it, it's a matter of how close to the mark they come as far as how planning goes in Pennsylvania, because you get these national publications and they paint with broad brushes and they don't always get it quite right for Pennsylvania. But I'll tell you, pretty much every story I see about long-term care insurance, and I those that, that's pretty regular fodder for, for news stories, is writing about long-term care insurance. And every single one of them, I see the same one line write off of Medicaid. So a recent, you know, Yahoo Finance is the most recent uh example of this. I saw an article uh where it says Medicaid can pay for long-term care. However, only people with limited financial means can generally qualify for Medicaid. That's simply not true. Now, of course, I mean the less fortunate among us who are out there who who don't have any money at all, they're going to be eligible for Medicaid right away because they have no money and they need medical care. And that's most of what the Medicaid program exists to do. But for the, the type of Medicaid I speak about in, on this show, if you've heard me talk about Medicaid before, I'm not talking about the people who have nothing. I'm talking about middle class families. It is my mission to shield the middle class from the costs and challenges of getting older. So you know, if you have your own $600,000 house and several vacation properties, you can qualify for Medicaid to pay for long-term care in Pennsylvania. It will require that you plan ahead in advance and probably place real estate into an asset protection trust. But that tells you right off the bat that Yahoo Finance is, is painting a uh, too broad a brush when they say that only those with limited financial means can generally qualify for Medicaid. That's not true. You're, you know, you're allowed to have uh, a rather expensive house. You're allowed to have a car that can be, there is no limit on how expensive the car or the value of the car. And if you have multiple properties, you can still get eligible if you plan in advance and put them into an asset protection trust. Second, if in addition to your primary residence, you and your spouse have a million dollars, I would not call that limited means. But an elder law attorney can accelerate the process of the spouse. If your spouse needs to go into a nursing home, the spouse goes broke while keeping all the money in the family. That's what the Medicaid law allows. There are strategies allowed by law where you can save an awful lot of money because, you know, the goal is we don't want the healthy spouse going into poverty as the hard-earned savings of the of the couple rapidly month after month $13,000 at a time goes to the nursing home. So there are tools in the law that allow those who are not necessarily low in in assets. I mean, you can have quite a bit of assets and still use the Medicaid program because if if your healthy spouse goes into poverty, now that spouse is going to be the government's problem in some other way. So that's why the law allows this. Now, if you have several million dollars, we're probably not going to do Medicaid planning, but I would not be so uh, so limited as the Yahoo Finance article and many others like it that I've seen that say, 
well, you, you can't have Medicaid. You know, you, you, that's only for people who are really poor. No, that's simply not true. This is a middle class program when it comes to long term care. And that's not to say that every family looking at nursing home care for a loved one should apply for Medicaid. I don't just push everybody who comes to Keystone Elder Law onto Medicaid. It depends on a range of factors, including the loved one's likely longevity, which is sometimes difficult to figure out. But, you know, sometimes it makes more sense to private pay for a period of time. I'll also be looking and seeing if do you have long-term care insurance. If we do go by the Medicaid rules, you're not allowed to have secondary property. Would would doing so jeopardize, I don't know, a family farm or or some vacation property that it's just really important that that stay in the family and and the people never never put it into a trust well in advance. I mean, so I'm looking at a number of factors and I'm not saying it, you know, if if you have a million dollars, you should go on Medicaid or, you know, it, it's there's there's a lot of other things, but Articles like this one in in Yahoo Finance just write off Medicaid in one line without addressing any of those nuances. Uh, You know, there's just there's no byline at the end of this article that I'm looking at. uh, But I'm guessing that the author of the article makes his living selling long term care insurance because that's that's really the gist of the article is don't rely on Medicaid, rely on long term care insurance. I don't sell long term care insurance. But I'll, I'll tell you, the article does get some things right. Uh, long-term care insurance pays for, for long-term care at home or in an assisted living or personal care community, while Medicaid does not. So to the extent that the article is saying, well, set aside Medicaid, let's focus on long-term care insurance, that's not a bad idea. Uh, for those who can still qualify for long-term care insurance, it might be worth looking into. On the other hand, I'll say it's very rare to see a policy, a long-term care policy, that will cover all of the cost of a nursing of nursing home care. That's thirteen thousand a month in South Central Pennsylvania. You know, maybe if you have high monthly income, the long-term care insurance plus the income will cover the whole bill. That way, if you do not have a living spouse, uh, you know, when you go to a, a nursing home, your savings will be protected. Uh, for children, otherwise, you know, I'm 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 able to save a hundred percent of a married couple's savings and about half for an unmarried person. So, long-term care insurance can help if it's just one spouse living. Going into some articles today that I see and, and just giving you my feedback on it, we'll jump into another article after a break. You're listening to the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. We're back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm your host, Patrick Cauley. And today I started off by saying, you know, we offer a lot of public education, such as this show itself, uh, because otherwise you're stuck just sort of reading articles and piecing it together for yourself. So I figured, why not go through some of the articles I've seen just in the last week or two? Uh, and give you my feedback on some of the ideas being expressed about later in life planning. And switching gears from the last uh, story I covered, uh, there was there was a, a story by ProPublica, which does a lot of uh, sort of public interest investigations. And the the article was entitled "The Ugly Truth Behind We Buy Houses." And you've seen these signs; they they tend to be near traffic lights or street corners. They're they're plain signs. They do they might it might say we buy houses and it will have a phone number. 
So if you want to sell your house and get quick cash, you call that number, I guess. Well, the story largely focuses on a company called Homevestors of America, but they apparently have franchises all around the country, and they go by different names, such as Patriot Home Care or Patriot Homes or something like that. So... And and I don't mean to say that every time you see one of those signs, I mean it might be a reputable uh, local investor, but but this this story caused the, me to think a little bit more about those those we buy houses signs. So the story focused largely on a widow in her early eighties who was moving to an assisted living facility. She called the number on the We Buy Houses sign because she wanted to know what was her house worth. Most people will will sell their house and then use the proceeds of the sale to pay for assisted living. So that that was probably a good first step on her part was figuring out what's my house worth. Maybe how long will that pay for care? That that's the way I would go about it. Her house was paid off, and a franchisee of Homevestors, this national company. Um, knew, I guess, from a number of factors that they could make a lowball offer for the house. And not only was this a skilled negotiator speaking to somebody, uh, you know, who and they're looking to make as much as they can on flipping the house as they could, but they were they were talking to somebody not used to negotiating, an 80-something-year-old woman. But then on top of that, there later they found that neurological exams had already found that the woman had dementia. She could not say what year it was. She routinely mistook her adult son for his uncle. So definitely uh, a situation ripe for manipulation or taking advantage of another person. So the story says that this Homevestors company cautions its franchisees not to take advantage of sellers, and I would hope so. But this particular franchisee convinced the woman to sell the house for about two-thirds of what it was worth. And then I guess this is not just this one franchisee. There's other companies like them out there that if you if if a if a son uh of this this poor woman as was the case here figures out, "Wait a second, what's going on here? My mom's being taken advantage of and they push back or try to cancel the sale, then the the this company will uh, will file legal documents making it impossible to sell the house. They basically put something like a lien on the house or a notice on the house that says that it's under a contract. So they basically cloud the title of the house. But, you know, I'll tell you, I've seen these lowball offers when working with clients at Keystone Elder Law. And, and I'll tell you, the best way to go about where this woman should have gone after wondering how much is my house worth, how much assisted living care will it pay for, the best way is to have a licensed real estate agent take a look at your house because real, licensed real estate agents have a fiduciary duty. They must look out for your best interests. And what they'll do is they'll run a report of recent sales of comparable houses to show you the real worth of your home, give you a really good idea that if you put it on the market, this is what you can reasonably ask for because people are buying similar properties for about that price. And they'll do the negotiating for you. So I think if she had gone that route instead, she would have had a more skilled negotiator. She would have gotten a fair price and it wouldn't have been uh, you know, somebody just trying to get a, a lowball offer and flip the house. So when you see these we buy houses signs, I don't know 
that every case is like this dirty fr- franchisee that was out there under the Homevestor's umbrella that was taking advantage of people. But keep in mind, ProPublica's investigation found that uh, home homevestors, or at least some of their franchisee, franchisees, excuse me, targeted desperate people. They were people whose homes were flooded. Suddenly, there were a number of signs in that area. People going through a divorce. People looking at long-term care facilities who need to sell a property. So these people, I guess some of the people who came up in the ProPublica investigation were were actually trained. Like it was in their, their training manual to interact with police, probate court staff, divorce lawyers, and others who, who on a day-to-day basis are working with people going through tough times, all with the goal of trying to find the next sale. So something to keep in mind. I'm going to switch to another another article I saw recently. This was uh, from a, an insightful website that shares information primarily with physicians, and I just happened to to come across it. But I'm switching gears to medical decision-making, uh, especially at the end of life. But this article that was primarily for uh, an audience of physicians said, what's the sense of having a living will if it's not honored? Now, let's let's just stop and take a step back. What What is a living will? Well, technically, it's two things. It's a health care power of attorney and living will. The health care power of attorney is effective as soon as you sign it, and you're naming somebody who will make your medical decisions for you if you lose the ability to communicate with your doctor. This is part of incapacity planning. It, sh- it should be a part of every single estate plan. I certainly guide hundreds of people through it. Uh, you know, uh, I would say in half a year, I've I've guided a uh, hundred people through through that, um, and so you're naming somebody you trust who will speak to the doctor and make your medical decisions if you are unable to take in information, weigh the pros and cons of a particular medical treatment, and make an informed response. The living will is the other half of it. That only comes into play when the doctors say that you are at an end stage. So regardless of what they do, there's something going on medically that's going to cause the end of life in the somewhat near future. And, and then what is that? It's The living will is an opportunity really for uh, quality of life decisions. So your whole life, your, your treatment goal in any healthcare context is fix the problem. Keep me alive longer. But is that really still your goal when multiple organ systems start failing or if you have advanced dementia, maybe your goal switches over to, you know what, if my kidneys fail, stop doing dialysis, don't keep me alive longer, instead keep me comfortable, use pain medication if necessary, but let me get the most out of the time I have left. In a a previous episode of this show, we covered hospice care and palliative care. Uh, and all that goes into that and really getting the most out of the time you have left. So that's the background of this story. And, you know, it's a question I hear from from clients at Keystone Elder Law all the time, though, is, is will my wishes be be honored? And those questions are often raised based on fears that the family members will not carry out the client's wishes. Um, but this article that entitled what's the sense of having a living will if it's not honored actually focused on the failure of healthcare professionals to follow the living will and this the, this case involved a dentist who has dementia he 
he had executed while he still had his cognitive capacity, a healthcare power of attorney and living will. So he named his decision makers. He made his wishes known for end of life care. Um, and it stated very clearly, no life prolonging measures if he gets to the point where, where you know, he says in his health care power of attorney and living will. Well, the, the dentist was admitted to the hospital with, with advanced se- a severe sepsis. So despite what the health care power of attorney and living will said, despite what his, his wife, who was designated as the decision maker, was saying, a treating physician went ahead and ordered IV antibiotics, a brain CT, a chest X-ray, blood tests, and other medications that had nothing to do with comfort measures. In other words, they were the doctor continued to try to extend life. Well, the dentist's family filed a lawsuit saying that the dentist would have died peacefully within a few days had his legal planning been followed by the doctor, but instead he lived an additional month in pain. This lawsuit is based on a legal theory called wrongful prolongation of life. And now at Keystone Elder Law, we don't sue doctors or nursing homes. That's just not the kind of work we do. We're not suing people. But And I don't know how successful a lawsuit like this would be in Pennsylvania. But an appeals court in New York where this, uh, where this happened upheld the dentist's right uh, as a competent adult to refuse medical treatment, even where that refusal might result in death or hasten death and that's exactly what the healthcare power of attorney and living will is for you know you routinely make that a part of your your estate plan you you give counseling at, at we do at keystone elder law anyway counseling on the living will what goes into it so people understand the decisions they're making the same decisions that this dentist made more on this story in a moment. We're going to take a quick break, and I want to pick this back up because I think there's some other situations that are different from this dentist story that are more common. But we'll, we'll be back in a minute. This is the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. We're back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, and I'm covering today some some stories I, I read. I, I'm a constant student of you know news stories and other articles that are out there on Later in Life Planning, and I'm just sort of going over some of them to just give you a flavor of what's out there and then to give my feedback on whether they get it right or not for, for planning ahead in Pennsylvania. Before the break, I was talking about a, a story really intended for an audience of physicians, but but advising them about a case where a dentist, uh, in a, probably after he was diagnosed with with dementia, but before it really got advanced, he had a health care power of attorney and living will. He stated his intention that, that at a certain point, uh, life prolonging measures should be stopped. And yet when he had advanced dementia and could no longer speak for himself, the treating physician kept doing life prolonging measures and he happened to have sepsis, which can be painful. And so when he by the time he passed away, he had gone through pain that his his wishes um, were, were supposed to avoid. So, you know, it led to his family filing a lawsuit for for the doctor exposing this this dentist patient to additional pain and suffering and you know i in my experience i've guided tons and tons of people through uh the uh the process of doing a healthcare power of attorney and living will really advising them on what it looks like uh when this moment comes and therefore what kind of wishes would you have 
Uh, but I've also, sometime after the signing of an estate plan, received calls from family members from the hospital asking what to do with their loved one's wishes when a doctor is urging a certain life-prolonging treatment. Now, under Pennsylvania law, the living will becomes effective legally, and, and it's enforceable. It's an enforceable legal document when the person who executed it reaches a point called end stage, or when they go into a permanent coma or a permanent vegetative state where the doctors just don't think the person will regain consciousness. So unlike any other medical decision where the healthcare agent, the health under the healthcare power of attorney, you know, if you're unconscious, they can admit you to the hospital. They can they can authorize an antibiotic. But when it gets to end stage, the living will part of it becomes effective. So the difficulty lies in determining when end stage has been reached. You know, a team of specialists might get together and one might think that 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 specialty can fix a problem, but another specialty says it doesn't matter if you do because this other problem is going to end the life of the patient. So in this story, the dentist's uh, sepsis may have been a clearer case of end stage than, for example, slowly seeing the the kidneys fail and then the question is do, you know do we continue dialysis on a person with advanced dementia who made very clear in their wishes in their living will that they did not want life prolonging treatment that might be a harder question have we reached the point where it doesn't matter if we do treatment we're just prolonging death at that point but a more common issue is the family simply not honoring the health care power of attorney and living will. Uh, clients of mine who happen to be healthcare professionals have told me numerous stories about, you know, they're in the ICU and they see the spouse or the adult child who has the decision making authority in a healthcare power of attorney, but they struggle to let go of their loved one. So instead of following the wishes of the person in that hospital bed in the ICU, they defy the living will and they instruct the treating physician to keep going with life life prolonging treatment. And, you know, what do you think the doctor is going to do in, in that circumstance? I, I suppose hospitals probably have policies when it comes to a clear health care power of attorney and living will and honoring the wishes of the patient. But the doctor in the hospital don't want to be sued for failure to treat a patient, which would be the opposite lawsuit of what this dentist's family brought. So, you know, they're going to go with what the spouse or the adult child wants. So what do you do about that? Well, number one, I would say there's two takeaways here. Number one, get good legal advice on what the health care power of attorney and living will actually is and how it's used. And sure, you can probably just find one online and fill it out. But do you know what you're filling out? Do you know what these questions mean? These are important decisions for your quality of life. And the second takeaway is probably more important than the first. However you fill it out, whether you have guidance or not, talk to your family or other chosen decision makers because they should be very clear about your wishes long before they're standing at the foot of your hospital bed. So I'm going to switch gears again. Um, I saw an article recently on estate administration and settling an estate when a loved one has passed away. This article happened to be out of uh, northwest Indiana, um, but it, it addressed a question I often see at Keystone Elder Law. It comes up or people make a remark. The, 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 the article is entitled, As Cheating is Unlikely, and it it 
it answers the question, how do you keep the state from taking all your property when you die? And that's very unlikely, the the article says, and I agree with that. Um, property, just to, to explain the title of the article, property as cheats, E-S-C-H-E-A-T-S, old legal word, it escheats to the state only if you die with no will and only then if you have no living parents, no living children, no siblings, nieces, or nephews. So the author gives this answer, and that's as true in Pennsylvania as it is in Indiana. And behind this question, though, is is a real reality of later-in-life planning. You have a plan, whether you sit down with a lawyer who's skilled at going through estate planning in a holistic approach, understanding what your predictable threats are and neutralizing them. Whether you sit down and go through that process or not, you have a plan. The government has a default plan for everyone who has not made a plan for themselves, a plan that makes sense for their unique family. They get the default one-size-fits-all government plan. So if you don't have a power of attorney, the government's plan is called guardianship. And you have to go to court, and it takes longer. It's way more expensive than sitting down with a lawyer and and having a power of attorney. And it requires that the details of your life be examined in a courtroom. If you don't have a will, the government says, who gets your property? Because we can't just have, you know, real estate and money in banks just sitting there because the person passes away. It has to go somewhere. So this is called dying intestate intestate that's that's when you you die without a will so the article that i'm 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 reading it, it says the following the problem with the intestate provisions is its lack of flexibility the list is very structured if not these family members then these family members the list is orderly but restrictive i'll tell you that's right on the money in pennsylvania If your plan is to leave money or other property to a mix of children, grandchildren, maybe even siblings, nieces, nephews, you need to make your own plan. You need to have a will because the government's plan is one size fits all and it will not match your intentions. And I would go a step further than what the article says uh, and say that the government's plan for your property could actually do harm So if you have a child or a grandchild with a disability of some kind, the government's plan leaves money to them even if that money will be mismanaged because they just don't have the ability to manage money or if it will eliminate benefits. You know, if they have SSI or housing benefits or Medicaid because of their disability, those will go away because they have too much money. And there's a smarter way to do it involving special needs trusts. But the government can't possibly know that about every single family, so the government's plan will just give them money. What about if you have uh, a child who was either just fell out of favor, just doesn't talk to anybody in the family, or even was outright abusive, and if if you sat down and made your own plan, they would not be included? Well, the government doesn't know that about your family. So if you if you die without a will, without making a plan unique to your family circumstances, that child is getting money and it's going to be the same amount that any other child because it just the, the intestate rules say, well, look to the children. If there's three children, you break it up into three equal parts, we're done. Uh, so forget the grandkids, forget, you know, the fact that one child is is uh has mistreated the parents. It's the three children. They're getting everything. And if you already helped one child during your life, 
you know, that often happens. One child just needs a little bit more financial assistance. Life came at them and they needed some help from the parents. Parents, of course, do that. And then if the parents thought, well, we already helped the one child an awful lot, so let's make the, the, the estate plan lopsided in favor of the two other kids just to keep things fair, well, that, that would be a sensible thing to do, but you need a will for that because the government plan is just going to leave everything in equal shares. They all get the same amount regardless of what help was already provided. And that, you know, that could stoke resentment. That could result in your kids not talking to one another. And how's that for a legacy? You know, if all you had to do was make a will and you could have made your plan work for your family. So money as cheating to the state is very uncommon. It happens when people don't make a will and there have been there are really more common problems that arise when you don't have a will than money going to the state. That's the takeaway there. More on all of this when we go on the when I, when I do weekly workshops, sign up at keystoneelderlaw.com using the workshops tab once a week I'm talking about these kinds of concepts and a whole lot more to make plans for your family and not rely on the government's plan. We'll be back to talk about more articles on later in life planning in a moment. You're listening to News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now your host, Patrick Colley. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I am your host Patrick Colley and today I'm going through articles I've seen in recent weeks uh dealing with later in life planning just because you know, we offer a lot of of education at Keystone Elder Law. We do this show. We do weekly uh, workshops. If you go to keystoneelderlaw.com, you can use the workshops tab and get registered for the next estate planning and asset protection or long-term care payment uh, strategy workshop. And I go through a lot of public education with people and I answer an awful lot of questions and it's all free. Because we see people in crisis all the time with avoidable mistakes, and that's what we're trying to get out in front of when we do public education. And and it's fun, too. I mean, I, I like putting together the puzzle for, for families to find the unique solution for their family, um, and people seem to really appreciate it. And I've just been blown away by the level of interest in the workshops. I mean, when 300 people sign up on a, on a Wednesday evening, um, it warms my heart to be able to at least explain the concepts and, and answer questions and steer people in the right direction. That tells me there will be fewer crises in the future, and that, that's a whole lot of emotional stress that will be avoided for an awful lot of families. But I'm going through these articles that have been in the news just to give people a flavor of, you know, if you do your own research, you're going to see some answers that some of which is on the mark, some of it misses the mark. And the last one I'm going to go over was from uh, no less a publication than Forbes. You know, they're no slouches. They, they know money. They know planning. Uh, they're usually quite good. And an article caught my eye recently entitled, Why Medicaid Shouldn't Be Your Long-Term Care Plan. Now, the author is not a lawyer, and so that was my first uh, cause, caused an eyebrow to raise. But I, I read on. I wanted to see why Medicaid should not be your long-term care plan. And I've already said this episode that I don't put everybody on to Medicaid in the event of nursing home care. There might be other strategies at play, but this seemed to take an awfully broad approach to condemning Medicaid. And the, start, the article starts out okay. It notes that Medicare 
does not pay for long-term care. That's true. It, Medicare certainly pays for a lot of medical expenses in your later years, but it's acute care. It's your trip to the doctor. It's your trip for, to the hospital for a procedure, maybe prescription meds, but it's not going to be your long-term care answer. I agree with that. The author writes that you know there are professionals who help people restructure their assets to qualify for Medicaid for nursing home care and have Medicaid pay that enormous bill once a month. True. They're called elder law attorneys, and I'm one of them. So then the article goes on to say restructuring your assets is not easy. The rules are complicated, and you have to become impoverished on paper. All true. This is not a do-it-yourself project. I have to to stay up on it every single day. You have to even know the caseworker and the the area of the state where the application for Medicaid is going because that will make a difference. The Medicaid rules themselves are very complicated, and some of the complication just comes from your own personal finances and how you've arranged your accounts and and how you own property. But yes, the rules. The, the author is absolutely correct. The rules are complicated, um, and getting getting poor on paper. To qualify for Medicaid, but keeping money in your family, uh, that's the goal, but it's not easily obtained, and, and I don't recommend trying to do that on your own. But then this non-lawyer author of the of the Forbes article presents his case for why Medicaid is not a great way to pay for long-term care. Here's argument number one. You have to do this at least five years before you want to qualify for Medicaid. Absolutely false. That is not true in any of the 50 states. You do not have to get broke on paper and stay broke for five years. In fact, that would be totally unworkable because most people don't know exactly when they will enter a nursing home. So counting back five years is impossible. What the author was probably thinking about is there are asset protection tools that you can use if you do it at least five years in advance. And why five years? Because you're transferring assets out of your name. And when you apply for Medicaid, they look back five years precisely to see, did you offload assets to keep them in your family only to turn to the government and say, pay for my care? So there's this five-year look back. And, you know, if 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 six years before you go into the nursing home, you put your home into an asset protection trust, or you put your vacation homes, or 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 you know hunting cabin or whatever it might be into a, into a trust, yes, you do that, and then it's not even on the table for the harsh Medicaid rules where they're looking at how much you owe, you uh, you own, but because um, you're not allowed to have anything other than your primary residence when you apply for Medicaid. But this is a far cry from what the author's saying. You know, that doing some asset protection, putting some things into trusts is a far cry from going broke and staying that way for five years before you enter a nursing home. That's just a, a stating it that broadly in the article was just plain wrong. You, you, you then go broke when you go into the nursing home, but not before. Argument number two. Medicaid's reimbursements to nursing homes are lower than the private pay rate. Very true. And that's, you know, I put that on the state legislature, not just in Harrisburg, but in in every state, um, for not increasing the reimbursements to uh, to nursing homes under under Medicaid. They they'll they'll update it and then they'll wait several years to update it again. Well, 
anyone who has any familiarity with business knows that your expenses go up every year, not every seven or eight years. And if the the, the longer the state waits to increase the, the reimbursements, the harder it is going to be for nursing homes to do the heroic work that they're doing for our seniors. But the author goes on to say, because of this, because of this differential between how much the nursing home is getting paid by Medicaid and how much they would be getting paid if you were paying privately, someone who is on Medicaid is going to have a hard time getting into a high-quality facility. False. That is a misunderstanding of the process. So, you know, obviously, if you're out there and you have no money at all and, and you're you're on Medicaid day one, that might make it a little harder to get in. But if you go in with all of the money that you, perhaps you and your spouse have, it's called the snapshot date. The day you go in, we take a snapshot of everything you have. Let's say you private pay for a month, and then during that month, we're moving as quickly as possible to go through all the steps in the Medicaid rules to impoverish the spouse who is applying for Medicaid. So as quickly as possible, after you pay that first month, you're going on Medicaid. And the federal federal law protects a resident from getting kicked out. So it's not like once you go on Medicaid, you, you know, you're going to get kicked out. That's not how it works. And as far as the high quality versus low quality facility in this area, South Central Pennsylvania, pretty much every single nursing home, both those you would consider to be high quality and those you consider to be low quality, except Medicaid, all of them. And and it's not Medicaid that's the problem. It's the, you know, it, for a low quality facility, it's it's their organization. It's who's the parent company who might be, you know, allowing high turnover because they don't pay their employees enough or, you know, it's organizational issues. It's not Medicaid that causes the difference in quality. Third argument in this Forbes article, Medicaid doesn't pay for assisted living. Well, that's not true in all states, but it actually is true in Pennsylvania. And so there, your strategy is going to be either you pay privately for your care or you have long-term care insurance. And I'm not opposed to that argument where I think holistic planning is the way to go, where if you're still healthy, you should be trying to build up a financial nest egg. Because what if you don't need nursing home care where Medicaid will take the entire bill off your table? Uh, What if you need you're not safe in your home, you need to go into personal care, memory care, assisted living, sort of the middle level of care. You're going to want the financial resources to do that. And if long term care insurance is part of that, I think that is a pretty good argument that you shouldn't rely entirely on Medicaid because you don't want to put your thumb on the side of the scale of going into a nursing home just because Medicaid will pay for everything. What if what if you just have physical mobility and you're fully aware of your surroundings and now you're going to be in, a, in an area where uh, or a facility that feels like a hospital? You know, that that doesn't seem like um, a, a way to protect your dignity and your independence. I mean, so so having financial flexibility makes sense to me. Um, but even if this article presented solid arguments against using Medicaid, which it, it really doesn't, what's the alternative? You know, if you if you rely entirely on long term care insurance to cover the whole bill, I've I've extremely rarely do I see any long term care policy that will cover thirteen thousand dollars a month in a nursing home. So you better hope if you if you're relying on long term care insurance that you have a lot of monthly income. 
I'm not saying Medicaid is perfect, but it works a whole lot better and saves a ton of money for families in central Pennsylvania compared to what you would be led to believe by this Forbes article. So I hope this has been helpful. I've, I've just gone through a number of articles that have been in the news recently just to give you a flavor about what the talking heads are saying about later in life planning. Some of them are good advice. Some of them not so good. You know, I invite you to get more information straight from people who do this all the time. Sign up for a, a workshop with Keystone Elder Law using the workshops tab, keystoneelderlaw.com. And I hope you keep listening to this show. Seek it out on the podcast. Give us a five-star rating, if you will. But I really, really am grateful for all of the listeners who reach out to us. I'm glad it's making a difference. See you next week on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, here on News Radio WHP 580.